0: Good morning, Good morning. <laughs> uh, happy to be beginning this uh, second full day of the uh, of the talks I want to give. And I consider this a kind of collaborative venture. I've been very happy to have the time to have those questions and uh, answers. And yesterday, I invited people to uh, write out some questions. And I got a number of questions. So I'd like to take maybe the first, um, 10 minutes or so this morning uh, to respond to these as best I can. And then I'll be talking about two of the greatest mystics in the Western tradition, Meister Eckhart and Julian of Norwich, and what they have to tell us about prayer. Um, And there's new and profound insights, I think, in both Eckhart and in in Julian. (coughs) But thank you, those people, I think there's about 10 of them or more, who uh, did, but, you know, took the time to write out questions and to leave them. I got here early this morning, and so I could go over these and think about them a little bit. And as I said, well, I'll try to read them out, at least in a short version, and say something about them. And if there are some further reactions to what I have to say, we can also engage in that. But certainly 10 or 15 minutes, we have to begin the, the lecture. First question. <coughs> Would you recommend the book, Christian Friendship by Aylred? Christian Friendship, spiritual friendship uh, is what... Aylred was another Cistercian. He was a good friend of Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a monk, and abbot in England, Riveau, despite the French name is in Northern England in Yorkshire. And he was another one of those wonderful Cistercian mystical authors. He wrote a good deal. But his major book is this book on spiritual friendship, and I recommend it very strongly. It's a very engaging book, which turns to an aspect of mystical contact with God that we sometimes forget. It's not only the model of the loving relationship of bride to groom that we find in the Song of Songs, the human bride and the divine groom, but friendship is another important love relationship in which you can find God. And, of course, the notion of being a friend of God or being a friend of Jesus is very strong in the, uh, in the Gospel of John and in various other places. And it's touched on by a number of authors, but no Christian mystic uh, looked at it with such profundity and such kind of attractive uh, um, joy than, than Elred of Riveau. It's not a long book. We have several translations, one in the uh, Cistercian Studies series. So, yes, it's one of the spiritual classics. And I strongly recommend Elred's (coughs) De Spirituale Amicitia, on spiritual friendship. How human friendship is really, he always says, where there are two you and me, there is also a third, there is Christ. So if two friends really love each other, there's a third involved in the relationship. (coughs) Uh, Second question. John Sanford refers to dreams as God's forgotten language. Will you comment on this in relationship to Christian mysticism and the collective unconscious? Uh, Sanford was an Episcopal priest and also uh, a psychotherapist. I know Sanford's name. I've not read that uh, that particular book. Uh, But I will make this comment. In the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, dreams are one of the ways in which God communicates his truth and makes contact with human beings. And in the history of Christian mysticism, there are num- <coughs> excuse me there are a number of Christian mystics in the course of history who also have dreams and use the contact that they have through the dream as a kind of guide to life and a teaching, uh, and, if you will, a, an aspect of the teaching that might come to them. So I certainly wouldn't want to exclude um, dreams. Dreams, a little bit like visions I spoke of that yesterday need to be discerned. That is, you have to have discernment of spirits as to whether the dream might indeed be some kind of contact from God or whether it's a product of your own imagination. So a little bit like visions. You can't say, well, every vision is authentic and every vision is direct. I think dreams can be a means of God's communication, but it needs to be uh, subject to the discerning principle. At least that's how I would, um, I would talk about that. A third question. <coughs> Can contemplative practice heal people wounded by religion? (laughs) I certainly hope so. (laughs) I certainly hope so, and we do meet many people who are wounded by religion. And uh, my shorter answer to that would be to go back to that model that I used, uh, taken from Baron von Hugel and his great book on the mystical element, that is Mysticism has an institutional aspect, it has an intellectual aspect, religion rather, has an institutional aspect, it has an intellectual aspect, it has a mystical aspect. And von Hügel argues if one or the other of those comes to dominate the other, religion can become destructive. If religion is all institution and obedience, this can be terribly destructive to the human spirit. And what can then help the healing process is the rebalancing the rebalancing of the intellectual, the mystical, and the institutional. So I I think that, yes indeed, uh, if religion has been destructive, if religion has become toxic, which it sometimes does, one way to try to heal or begin the healing process is the rebalancing in which the mystical can be, can be very important. Um, Another question. In describing the Benedictine reforms, you mentioned that the latter image was older, uh, all the way back to Genesis, and the intoxicating concept, sacred intoxication, sacra ebreitas, um, was at least a thousand years old before the people I was uh, talking about. Uh, It is. The first person to use the image of sacred intoxication, God overwhelming the human mind, uh, is actually the Jewish mystic Philo of Alexandria, who's a contemporary, probably, of St. Paul, uh, and who's uh, one of the most important figures in the Jewish mystical tradition. And the early Christian fathers knew Philo and read Philo because he was the first person to try to put together revealed scriptural truth from the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, with the riches of the pagan philosophical tradition, primarily Platonism. And for the Christian fathers like Origen, and Ambrose, (coughs) and Gregory of Nyssa, and various other people, they read Philo and they saw that Philo was trying to do something of what they were trying to do. They even invented a very nice story that Philo ran into St. Paul and was converted. (laughs) <laughs> never <laughs> happened as far as we know so so philo is in the unique position of being a kind of jewish source a jewish mystic philosophical mystic but a, a firm believer in the revelation of god who contributes to the christian uh, mystical uh, mystical uh, tradition uh, at least it initiates and uh, This intoxication, uh, the intoxication alluded to, uh, does it go beyond what one calls emotionalism is the last part of this question. I I think it it does. Because it may involve a certain kind of feeling, but it also involves a certain truth that's communicated that goes beyond mere emotionalism. This is why I talk about mystical consciousness. We can have some kind of experience that one feels in the sacra ebreitas, the holy intoxication may be that, but then what does it mean? What does it signify? And how should it shape and uh, transform our lives? So it's not mere emotionalism. I've never had sacred intoxication, I will have to admit. But those who have speak about it in great uh, great detail. It's one of those uh, motifs, ancient and inherited motifs, that the mystics use to talk about the transformation of consciousness, consciousness going beyond its ordinary boundaries. And does Origen use the apparatus of the latter? Yes, he does, and many others do as well. (coughs) Another question. Can you get us a list or bibliography of the writers and books you have mentioned? It would be good to provide this on uh, one of the apps or something. Yes, I'd be happy to do that if people, uh, the organizers, want to follow up on that. Hate to keep flogging my book, but there's. (laughs) Wait (laughs) around here. There's also uh, all the authors that I've spoken of. There are uh, excerpts from them, passages from them in the essential writings, and there's also a bibliography at the end of this book. What I call a critical bibliography of modern study of mysticism, and it's critical bibliography because I make slight comments on what this book does and what it's trying to do and what its importance is. So if you're interested in following through, and there's, of course, a large modern literature on uh, on mysticism. So the bibliography in here will give you a kind of start on important kinds of things, both what I call classical studies, older books, von Hugel's Mystical Element, and then more recent literature, the last 20, 25 years, books and some important articles with regard to the study of mysticism. But I'll, I'll also be happy to send a list you know, of all the people that I've, touched on and what particular writings I've used. (coughs) Another question. You mentioned that the nobles took over the monasteries because the monasteries had all the money. (laughs) Two questions. Why did they have all the money? (laughs) The simple answer to that one is land. They had the land, and in the early medieval society, which is kind of a pre-monetary society for the most part, wealth was in land, and the monasteries were vast, land-holding operations. Often the the land was given by a king or a noble, and then the monks cultivated it, sometimes by hand, but often by having their own servants and, and serfs. And since the monasteries had a kind of economic continuity that many other groups in society did not have, the early medieval monasteries became very wealthy. Uh, That wealth was used for good purposes and sometimes for not so good purposes. Um, And since the monasteries accumulated so much wealth, hungry nobles often wanted to take over monastic lands, or at least take over the the produce and what we call the capital that accrued, both in terms of you know, food stocks and livestock and all sorts of other things. Um, And that's one of the reasons for monastic reform. The new monastic reform movements like Cistercians and Carthusians and others wanted a poorer kind of monasticism. And often didn't want the feudal obligations to the local uh, nobility that the older Benedictines enjoyed. So it's an important part of the story. And there's a second part of this question. How, does monast- how do monasteries having all the money conform to Jesus sending out his apostles and not taking money? doesn't conform too well. <laughs> 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 and part of, the, part of the tension in the history of monasticism has been between You know, monks giving up all things and going out into the desert, then the world kind of following them and sometimes enriching them in a certain way. And then the monks realizing this doesn't conform with the gospel or with their original intentions. So you have an oscillation in Western monastic history between possessors and non-possessors. Actually, this is the way the big quarrel in Russian... um, monasticism in the 15th and 16th century between two views of monasticism, the possessors and the non-possessors, but that's always been in monasticism, the tension between those who say no, no, we should be non-possessors, we should give up everything, and those who say no, but we have an important role in society, and part of that involves us being in possession of certain kinds of wealth, etc. So it's a long, complex kind of uh, issue. Another question, can you say a few words about the Celtic tradition? I'd love to say a few words. <laughs> I'd love to say more, <laughs> perhaps more than, a, more than a few words because this is a very important aspect of Western spiritual traditions in general and also of mystical uh, traditions, the Celtic contribution. And Celtic is good because it includes Ireland, and it includes Wales, and it includes uh, Scotland, uh, etc. cetera. And there are important mystical figures in that tradition like the 9th century Irish um, writer John Scotus Eriugena, who's a great philosophical and theological thinker, but I've argued, and others uh, also have argued, that he's also a great mystical writer uh, and other examples. Um, Celtic spirituality has, of course, been very much in the news, you might say, or in the public eye for the last uh, several decades, and there are a lot of books on Celtic spirituality, I strongly recommend the book in the Classics of Western Spirituality done by Oliver Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S. He's a Welsh um, uh, scholar of theology and spirituality. He did a fairly large book in the classic series on Celtic spirituality, which has selections from all of the Celtic traditions, with very good introductions and, uh, and the like. But there's a very rich uh, literature on that. and. I could give a whole, easily give a whole lecture on that, but that's about as much as I can say at this stage. Um, Can you say a word about dryness in prayer and stalling or lack of progress in the spiritual life? Most of the mystics will say dryness is an opportunity. It's a part of the mystical path. And it's not so much... Uh, something to be um, suffered, one has to suffer it, but it's something to be used. It's part of the plan that God has for each person on that, uh, on that path. Teresa of Avila again would be a, a good example. Uh, for 20 years she was a pretty mediocre nun, as I mentioned I think yesterday. Uh, she tried to devote herself to uh, interior prayer, the prayer of recollection, but without great success. And she knew that she was mediocre. She struggled with her (laughs) mediocrity in a certain way and continued for 20 years that struggle uh, until finally there was this outpouring of divine grace after 20 years of struggle, which moved her to a whole, a different level. So I think Teresa, there are many, many other examples of this, but Teresa is a good example. Read her life especially the first even 10 chapters because she describes her whole early life and her time in the the nunnery and uh, and her her difficulties. She wanted to do better. She wanted to be a better nun, but she couldn't do it on her own. And this is why reading Augustine's Confessions was part, reading that was part of the instrument that God was using to show it has to be God's work, it has to be divine grace. But you have to continue to strive to make yourself in some way worthy kind of ground for that infusion of grace. So her dryness and her affliction was part of that process and it was a long struggle. Um, On the journey of purification, the traveler has to pass through the rip current of of the emotional world. Some practices like tantra use pleasure to go beyond pleasure. Others recommend aestheticism, others a middle path to moderation which can turn into mediocrity and control. Which path is taken by Christian mystics typically? How does the travel ensure they are not caught in pride and control in the paths of moderation and extreme aestheticism? This complex question. I don't think there's any particular path which is typical. You say, this is the usual path. There are a variety of paths. Christian mystics often talk about three stages, the beginners, the advanced or proficient, and the perfect. It's a typical three-stage model. But you know, it's very generic, very, very general. And as I was mentioning yesterday, it, it's more of a kind of pedagogical tool um, other mystics get more detailed about the various kinds of stages, but they all admit, you know, that there are many, many paths to God, and no one path to God is ever going to be sufficient for everybody. It's a personal journey which a person should make it with collaboration of others, the spiritual direction, etc., within the Christian community. But I don't think you can say, this is the way you have to go. And this is St. Ignatius of Loyola, even who lays out this very, very intricate path in, in, in the exercises. You know, says there are many, many paths to God. This is only one of them. Teresa says the same thing and various others. So I would avoid trying to say this is what, this is typical. This is what the majority of people do. This is why reading individual mystics and seeing their own struggle, And reading several, you begin to see how personalized this becomes in terms of the action of grace and uh, and others. And then I think this is the last, (coughs) yeah. Quotation from Paul. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. How does this faith experience presented as normal for Christians by Paul relate to mystical consciousness? Well, Paul was one of the original mystics, one of the original Christian mystics. And as I've mentioned, uh, I think that he teaches us that the call to mysticism begins by our incorporation in Christ through baptism. And indeed the phrase being in Christ, en Christo in Greek, is one of the most common phrases in the Pauline epistles. The believer should be in Christ and living out that life uh, in Christ. And many Pauline texts are crucial texts in the later history of Christian uh, mysticism. He's seen as the archetypal mystic, particularly because of his account of his rapture into heaven. Remember 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the first four verses, he was drawn up into heaven and he hears things that cannot be revealed. That's one of the most typically often cited texts in the history of Christian mysticism. Not that everybody will be caught up into heaven, but they say, ah, Paul Paul indeed was a mystic. So that for Paul, the relationship between faith and mystical consciousness, I think, is is central. And he is one of the scriptural bases for making that that kind of claim. Albert Schweitzer, you may have heard of, uh, one of the great Protestant theologians of the 20th century, He wrote the famous book, The Quest for the uh, Historical Jesus. But his other book, less well known, was The Apostle Paul, The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle. The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle. It's a wonderful book, first published in the 1920s, and it was translated into English. And that's uh, Schweitzer's argument, which was very untypical of Protestant theologians in that time in the 20th century, who were very opposed to mysticism. But Schweitzer says, no, no, Paul was a mystic. Uh, and uh, the idea that he was just a preacher of justification is only one half of the story. The other half of the story is Paul as, uh, as the mystic. So good questions. Um, does anybody have a follow-up on that or shall I begin our lecture? Okay, well, yeah, boom. Bo. Well, the, the ideal of poverty goes right back to the beginning, because remember, Anthony the abbot, uh, the, the archetypal uh, monk, I mean, he hears, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. He hears it in church one day, and it hits him in the heart, and he says, ah, that's what I have to do. So poverty is there right from the beginning, and of course, it gets formalized as a vow in Benedictine monasticism and, uh, and later. And it is quite true, the second point that you made, that uh, these wealthy monasteries, the wealth was not the wealth of individual monks who had to give up everything when they entered the monastery. It was the wealth of the community itself. Yeah. You have presented very interesting personalities in the duration of a long time. Is there a common socio-historical context that creates or brings, gives birth to to mystics? Mm. Or are mystics Look of nature, (laughs) human genes? What is there are personality types of mystics? That's why they become symbols of renewal for the times. Yeah. I think there are a vast variety of mystics, and you can't say they all fit in one personality type as I've read them over the course of many, many years, you see as many varieties of mystics as probably there are varieties of people in this this room. Their, Their personal history is very important there. But let's also remember, as I emphasized yesterday, mystical consciousness is a gift. It's a gift. I think it's given to everybody in one way or another. But the great figures, the great figures we call the mystics, like the people we've been talking about. They've been given unusual gifts, but they're given to people who have personalities and who have good sides and bad sides and who do sometimes wrong things and also, uh, also right things. So there's no particular kind of person. There's no particular social milieu, I think. You can't put limits on the operation of, of grace. Let me take Bernard of Clairvaux as, as another example. When I talk about Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, and I have, in, invite questions, and uh, some, I often get the question, somebody puts a hand up, what about the Crusades? Bernard preached the Crusades. How can you talk about this guy as a great leader and Christian teacher? And I say, Bernard was wrong about the Crusades. (laughs) Very wrong about the the Crusades and to preach the uh, Crusades. And so the mystics are not perfect people. And indeed, most saints are not perfect people. Hagiography makes them out to be these ideals who never had any weaknesses. But if you really know the lives of the saints, and if you really know the lives of the, of the mystics, they're human beings. They have their faults, they have their blindnesses, they have their limitations, etc. So there's no single type. There's as many types as there are uh, uh, people. And what makes the, the, the mystic a the special figure is the openness to divine grace and then the fact that grace uses this person for a particular purpose. And we look at the good things that they did, the good teachings that they leave, uh, and, you know, try to balance that with things in their lives and uh, things, and even in their teachings, that we say, no, that's, that's really not what we would want to do today. About cultural is, is, there a thread that is there a common thread? I really don't think so. I think you have to study them within their historical context and their personal stories. And I find it, at least, maybe somebody can figure it out, but I certainly couldn't say there's some, there's some common thread. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about two uh, further very uh, significant mystics uh, today, uh, Meister Eckhart and Julian of Norwich. And I'm just gonna concentrate on what they have to say about prayer because, of course, to, uh, to give a lecture in which you'd try to explain both of them would be almost impossible. Their thought is so capacious, so profound. Their influence has been so, uh, so extensive. Um, but let me say just a little bit about Meister Eckhart's life and teaching and then frame his controversial doctrine on prayer. because was, uh, uh, part of it was condemned by the Pope in the famous bull against uh, Meister Eckhart. So Eck- Eckhart is a Dominican. German from the lower nobilities, born about 1260 in present-day Saxony. As a young man, he would have become a Dominican at the age of 15 or 16. And he's trained in the convent at Erfurt in uh, in Eastern uh, Germany. And uh, he's a brilliant young man, so he's sent on for further education to the Dominican House of Studies in Cologne, which had just recently been founded by Albert the Great. Uh, and then he's sent on to Paris, the, you know, the center of theological education at that time. And at Paris he studies for many years and becomes a, a master of theology, a Magister Theologiae, and becomes, uh, and he takes the chair, the Dominican chair of theology, one of the two Dominican chairs, to be correct, at the University of Paris. Early on, about 1300, 1302, then he goes back to Germany. He serves as a provincial and, uh, and, and the like. And then he has the unusual um, accolade of being called a second time to go teach in Paris. Only Thomas Aquinas before him had had two Paris teaching periods. Usually the Dominicans circulated their theologians through for a couple of years and then brought them back to their home provinces. Eckhart's a very famous preacher at this stage. He's a master of theology, so he's writing technical Latin works in the university. But he's also very famous as a preacher. And he spends a lot of time preaching in Strasbourg. uh, And this would be about time 1310 through about 1320. And then he's now an old man. He's called back to Cologne, where he also continues his preaching. And he's one of the most important Mm -hmm. Dominicans of, of the period. Famous theologian head of the, all the Dominicans in Germany, uh, etc. So it's a crisis when in 1326, the local bishop, the archbishop of Cologne, issues a, uh, or says this Meister Eckhart's teaching is dangerous. And they begin inqu- an inquisitorial process against uh, Eckhart with excerpts taken from his writings, both his Latin writings and his vernacular uh, writings. And there are lists of these which are about two or three hundred dangerous articles taken from Eckhart's teaching, both his vernacular teaching, his sermons, which were preached in the German, and then his Latin works, uh, you know, his technical uh, academic works. Eckhart and most of the Dominican uh, powers that be defended him, and we have Eckhart's defense saying that he had been misunderstood, often misquoted, and occasionally admitting, well, I could have said that better. And he always says, quite explicitly, if someone can convince me this is theologically wrong, I withdraw it. So I cannot be a heretic. Why? Because a heretic is not a question of your intellect. It's a question of your will. That is that you stubbornly maintain things that you have been told and know are wrong. So he said, I can be an error, sure. But convince me of that. But I can't be a heretic because if you really show me that what I've said is incorrect, I withdraw it. He appeals to the Pope, Papal Court at Avignon. So he and a number of other Dominicans go to Avignon. This is about 1326, 1327. And there are two commissions established by the Pope. This is Pope John XXII. And, you know, investigate uh, 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 at Meister Eckhart's writings. We have some of the documentation. It's long it's complicated. But it's, a, as you can imagine, it's a fantastic story. Here's a great Dominican teacher and figure being accused of heresy. You know, what's, what's going on here? Some attack him, some defend him. Um, in the midst of this process, inquisitorial process, Eckhart dies in January of 1328. And usually that'd be the end of the story, he's dead. But the Archbishop of Cologne keeps pestering the Pope and the Pope is afraid of heresy that's spreading all over Europe, so in 1329, <laughs> specifically March 27 of 1329, the Pope issues a bull papal document in which he condemns 31 articles of the original hundreds of articles, 31 articles taken from Eckhart's writings in two classes. First 15 are condemned as heretical. The second group are condemned as, oh, they sound really bad and they're awful and they're dangerous, but maybe with a lot of argumentation they're not, actually heretical Uh, and then he notes at the end of this bull that Eckhart said if things were heretical he would really withdraw them insofar as they might be be misunderstood etc. So Eckhart's not condemned as a heretic, you still hear that sometimes. Certain things Eckhart said are condemned as heretical Uh, and that is a part of the heritage of Eckhart. Are these things really heretical or not heretical, et cetera, et cetera? In the 1980s, the Dominican Order petitioned the Pope, Pope John the 20, uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, to withdraw the condemnation. Uh, but thus far, nothing has happened. <laughs> but <laughs> Eckhart, Eckhart keeps getting getting cited uh, over and over again, even by book. Both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict cite Eckhart in some of their sermons and writings and different things like that. But that's part of the the interest in Eckhart. And the reason I give you this little uh, uh, lead-in is because one of the articles condemned as heretical deals with prayer. (laughs) Let me read it. Article seven. He who prays for anything particular prays badly and for something that is bad. Because he is praying for the negation of the good and the negation of God and he begs that God be denied him. He that prays for anything particular, the Latin there is hoc et hoc, which is a technical term for any particular created thing. What Eckhart is saying, you should not pray for any particular created thing. And the Pope says, oh, no, no, that's, uh, that's, that's bad. Now, is that really bad or not? That's what I'm going to try to unpack uh, here in the next uh, 10, uh, 10 minutes or so. Because I think if you put these... Eckhart liked to speak excessively. He liked to speak outrageously. And a lot of his sermons are filled with outrageous statements. But that was part of his technique as a preacher. Eckhart's technique was most of the audience are asleep. <laughs> and if you say something outrageous, it wakes them up. <laughs> and it makes them think. And what you really need to do with regard to your faith is to think about it. So the, uh, the sermons and even some of his uh, writings, that the passage is actually taken from his commentary, from his Latin commentary in the Gospel of John, but it's reflected in places in his sermons as well. And they are outrageous statements, but then Eckhart puts them within a kind of context to try to give you a new understanding. But the, the excessive character, he himself says, I talk excessively, which he means, you know, I, I talk over the top, we might say. Not that I talk too much, I, I talk over the top, but I talk over the top to get the audience awake and thinking about issues that they ordinarily forget about. So, and uh, let me quote just a few other passages here that echo the same kind of thing, German Sermon 67. Those who pray for anything but God, or to do with God, pray wrongly. When I pray for nothing, then I pray rightly, and that prayer is proper and powerful. But if anyone prays for anything else, he is praying to a false god. And one might say, that's sheer heresy. I never pray so well as when I pray for nothing and nobody. (laughs) Another quotation, Sermon 26. Alas, how many people there are who worship a shoe or a cow and encumber themselves with it? They are foolish folk. As soon as you pray to God for creatures, you pray for your own harm. For a creature is no sooner a creature than it bears within itself bitterness and trouble, evil and distress. So these people get their just deserts; They reap distress and bitterness. Why? They prayed for it. <laughs> <laughs> they get what they deserve. <laughs> so Eckhart has this strong critique of prayer, at least it seems, petitionary prayer asking for something other than God. And I think that's the crucial uh, 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 recognition because he also insists throughout his writings that prayer is absolutely essential to the Christian life. It's certain kinds of attitudes of prayer, certain ways in which we pray that are wrong. And that's what Eckhart is trying to get across in these very excessive, dramatic kinds of, uh, of statements. For instance, another, uh, this is a text on the other side, Sermon 34. If the only prayer we ever say in our lives is thank you, that will be enough. If the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that's sufficient, that's sufficient for prayer. And in one of his Latin, sermon, uh, Latin sermons, he actually gives a little theology of prayer. He lays down nine points. This is a Latin sermon, uh, what is it, 47.2. Uh, so he lays down nine points about the proper way, what is prayer and what is the proper way to prayer. And he gives a wonderful definition of prayer. He says, prayer is having a conversation with God. Confabulatio is the Latin to literally to speak with. Prayer is having a conversation with God and it much delights those in love to talk to each other familiarly and in secret. So there's a strong theology of prayer, I think, in, uh, in Eckhart, but there's also a strong critique of certain ways of praying and very powerful statements that you've read against those ways of praying, which was what got him in in trouble. In other words, Eckhart's teaching in prayer needs to be seen in the light of his his whole theology, his whole mystical theology, in which the idea of letting go, letting go and detaching from creatures and our attachment to creatures is the only way to God. This notion of letting go, Galassenheit, Galassen is the German here, or cutting away, detaching, Abgeschiedenheit is the, is the German here, and getting rid of our attachment, our attachment to creatures, our attachment to ourselves, and even our attachment to God, at least God conceived of as a kind of reward machine. God is a great big you know, rewarder in the sky if you put enough quarters in the slot, God will send down the candy bar. That's that's the idea of God you have to get rid of. So you have to detach yourself from creatures, inordinate desire for creatures, your inordinate sense of yourself, and also your wrong idea of God. That needs to be let go. That needs to be uh, detached. And insofar as wrong attachment is a part of your praying, it's a bad prayer. It's a very bad prayer. So you have to let go of all attachment to your own desires and to creatures that you want. You know, you pray for your good shoes or a healthy cow. <laughs> that example, <laughs> example before. In order to pray in the correct way. My friend Freyman Loerse, who's uh, one of the heads of the Eckhart Society in Germany, wrote probably the best article on, on prayer in Eckhart. And I'm just going to quote here from my translation. He says, the prayer that Eckhart wants most must be without attachment. And it must not become a business arrangement with God. (laughs) Nor must it, it should not take away a person from his inner rest. It must ask nothing else from God than God himself. So that's the proper prayer. Asking God for God's self, not asking God for stuff that we need to fulfill our own desires. And you find that teaching throughout the course of Eckhart's writing. So you have those critical texts that say, oh, you seem to say prayer is nonsense. Then you have this whole series of texts that talk about the proper kind of prayer, which is made from detachment, which is made from releasement, which is made from an empty spirit, as Eckhart uh, calls it, that is the real prayer. I'll quote just a couple of these. The most powerful prayer and the strongest of all to obtain everything is that which proceeds from an empty spirit. The emptier the spirit, the more is the prayer and the work mighty, worthy, profitable, praiseworthy, perfect. The empty spirit can do everything. The empty spirit is one that is confused by nothing, attached to nothing. For it is all sunk deep down into God's dearest will and has forsaken its own will. We ought to pray so powerfully that we should like to put our every member and strength, our two eyes and ears, mouth, heart, all our senses to work, and we should not give up until we find that we wish to become one with God who is present to us and whom we entreat. So powerful prayer for Eckhart is really essential, but it has to be the right kind of prayer. You can't ask God for something. You have to ask God, in a certain sense, for God, and uh, in that sense, we never, Eckhart also teaches, and I'll s- summarize this kind of quickly, Eckhart also teaches that, you know, prayer is not changing God's will, and if we think about it that way, it's very much the wrong attitude because God, there's no past and present for God. God lives in the eternal mm-hmm. now in which all things are, uh, are present. So asking for something that might change in the future is the wrong way of thinking uh, about this. We have to remember that uh, it's the current prayer of detachment uh, that is the true nature of uh, prayer. And I'll quote again just a passage or two. In, I say that purity and detachment does not know how to pray. Because if someone prays, he asks God to get something for him or he asks God to take something away from him. But a heart in detachment asks for nothing, nor has it anything of which it would gladly be free. So it is free of all prayer and its prayer is its uniformity with God. So your union with God itself is a prayer. Your uniformity with God, your union with God is a prayer. And the idea of praying for some particular thing for yourself is is misleading at best and perhaps even uh, dangerous. And uh, if you take that condemned article that I read at the beginning, Article 7, if you put it back in context. uh, This comes at the end, towards the end of Eckhart's John uh, commentary. And uh, the Pope at, and the Inquisitors, you know, lifted out this article, but they didn't say anything about the qualifications, the explanation. Uh, and this is the explanation that God, give, uh, God gives, that God God. gave Eckhart <laughs> in, in, order, in, in, order to, in order to convey to us. Because in explaining that outrageous statement, Eckhart says, you know, every devout person praying to God should pray this alone. May the will of God be done, or what God wants. That's fiat voluntas tua, let your will be done. That's that's the ultimate prayer. May the will of God be done, or what God wants. Not this or the other thing being done, but this or the other thing indifferently and without distinction. It should not be this more than that, or maybe this rather than that, or one that would like to receive something better than not receive it. Let it be that God wishes this or that, whether to give or not to give. Hence, a person who prays like this receives by not receiving, consequently always gets everything that he asks for. <laughs> Those of you who are familiar with uh, Ignatian spirituality, you'll note this is a lot like the indifference of, of, the Ignatian, of the Ignatian tradition. So they think this, and of course it's, as I said, it's, it's right, out of the, uh, right out of the Our Father. And just to uh, make two further points about Eckhart's uh, prayer uh, before turning to, um, to Julian, because we do have a second figure here. Eckhart himself leads us a number of examples of his prayers. And if you read Eckhart's sermons, he almost always ends each sermon with a prayer. And I don't, think you know, they're short prayers but I think they're very powerful because they come at the conclusion of each of those sermons and they often summarize the message of the sermon. And we know that Eckhart himself also composed uh, individual prayers. frey Lurzer, whose article I mentioned is one of the editors, actually, of Eckhart's uh, German works, uh, has identified at least four prayers that he feels were authentically composed by Eckhart. I'm going to read you just one of those because I do think it gives an insight into Eckhart's mode of prayer. It's a short prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your only begotten Son in whom you give yourself and all things. We ask you, Heavenly Father, that just as you have given us your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom and in whom you neither will nor can nor may deny anyone anything, so may you hear us in him and make us free and empty of our many faults, and make us one with Him in You, Amen. Now you note that prayer it starts with thanksgiving. It does make a petition, but it doesn't make a petition for some particular thing. It makes a petition for God's giving in Christ. So it's deeply—it's a deeply Christological prayer. I think it's a—it's a very fine uh, summary of what. Um, Eckhart had in mind. And the last thing, and I'll just mention this briefly, I was going to say a lot more about it. Um, In some of his sermons, Eckhart does give us a kind of model for a certain kind of prayer life. And I'd particularly point to four sermons that Eckhart preached. It's a kind of sermon cycle. He preached it for the Christmas season, maybe in 1304, we're not quite sure. Preached it for the Christmas season because the liturgical texts are tied to Uh, Christmas readings, and it's about the birth of the word in the soul. I think I mentioned that yesterday. The the word is always being born in the depths of the soul, in the ground, in our ground uh, person, but we're not aware of it. So we have to try to become aware of the birth of the word in the soul. And uh, these four sermons, Eckhart, Uh, deals with this in great intensity. What is the birth of the word in the soul and how do we arrive at that birth of the word in the soul? The basic message in these four sermons is stillness and silence and emptying the self is the only way to arrive at the birth of the word in the soul. It's not our activities. It's uh, the good as they are, and uh, our external and even internal practices. It's the emptying out of the self in stillness and silence and being willing to wait for God's activity that will bring our recognition of the birth of the word in, uh, in the soul to, to our hearts. I think this may be one reason why John Main in a certain sense uh, had read Eckhart and. Uh, in a certain sense resonated with, um, with um, Eckhart. Uh, I'll read just one perhaps, passage from one of these uh, sermons. Uh, uh, the sermons are often a kind of question and answer format. Eckhart's responding to questions that are being asked, and uh, someone asked him, is it better to do something towards this, towards the birth of the word and the soul, to imagine and to think about God or should a person keep still and silent in peace and quiet and let God speak and work in him, waiting for God to act? Now I say, as I said before, that these words and this act are only for the good. This is, he says this teaching is, is advanced teaching. It's for advanced people. People can easily misunderstood it if they're not advanced. So this, uh, this teaching is only for good and perfected people who have absorbed and assimilated the essence of the virtues. They must know... The very best and noblest attainment in this life is to be silent and to let God work and speak within. When the powers of the soul have been completely withdrawn from all their works and images, then the word is spoken. Therefore, and this is the liturgical text, therefore he said, in the midst of silence, the secret word was spoken unto me. And so the more completely you are able to draw in your powers to a unity, and forget all those things and their images which you have absorbed. The further you get and get from creatures and their images, the nearer you are to this and the readier to receive it. If only you could suddenly be unaware of all things, then you could pass into your oblivion of your body as St. Paul did when he said, whether in the body or not I cannot tell. That's uh, Second Corinthians 12. So if you want to read about Eckhart's uh, prayer practice and what he advises concretely, you can read those four sermons. Uh, the, they were translated by M. O'Connor Walsh and uh, The Essential Mystical Writings of Meister Eckhart, uh, which is published by Crossroad, um, is a reprint of Walsh's translations of the Eckhart uh, sermons, which I hope to edit uh, to bring them a little bit up to date. Julian of Narch, trying to do two big figures in one lecture is not easy, but this will have to be a little bit shorter, uh, but I I hope uh, I'll at least be able to expose. Because Julian is, is equally, I think, theologically profound in what she tells us about prayer. And with Julian, you have a focused text, the 14th Revelation. You all probably know about Julian. She's born around 1342. We don't know exactly when she dies, maybe around 1417. We really know very little about her life because we have the texts of her revelations, the short text and long text, but very, very little other kind of notice. Um, uh, But the text itself is, of course, extremely popular in modern times very interesting, only a few manuscripts of Julian's work survive. She was read by some of the Catholics in the, in the 17th century and the 18th century, uh, but really not widely known. Towards the end of the 19th century, scholars begin to edit the Middle English text, but again, they're scholars and that's not widely known. It's only in the early 20th century, about 100 years ago, a little bit more, that translations of Julian's text from Middle English into modern English, and then into host of languages, uh, proliferate, and they of course have made her one of the most popular of all Christian mystics, and quite legitimately so, because while this is a very accessible text, it's also a very profound text, and Julian of Norwich has emerged as one of the, I think, most profound Christian mystics and Christian theologians. Uh, of, uh, of the Middle Ages and there's a, a vast literature now on Julian. New books pour out <laughs> virtually every, every year. It's uh, almost impossible to uh, keep up with them. So, um, the story is pretty well known because she tells us right at the beginning of her text, the two versions, at the age of 30 and a half in the year 1373 on May 13th. And we have an exact date here very pious woman Julian maybe she was an anchoress already maybe not we don't know you know what anchoress is a person who chooses to be enclosed within a cell and adopt a particular lifestyle of asceticism and prayer Uh, she became an anchoress whether she was at this time or not but she has a near-death experience she describes in great detail and in the midst of that near-death experience she's given 16 showings revelations of Christ's passion and they're described the descriptions are really remarkable many of you will have read them if if you haven't read them I mean please please do read them they're very remarkable texts and uh, after this she has a miraculous recovery and she writes down what she calls the vision showed by the goodness of God to a devout woman This seems to be the original title today we call it the short text written down a couple of years after the, uh, uh, the probably a couple of years. and it's a short um, 25 chapters, about 11,000 words. By this stage she's now an anchoress in the city of Norwich. You can go and visit her anchor hold as it's called a little the cell. It's not too little, the cell built alongside the church, where she could you know look, observe the liturgy uh, during the day and uh, you know food would be passed into her and cetera. She became a well-known spiritual advisor because one of the few records we have of her is a, another woman, woman mystic Marjorie of Kemp goes to Narge to see Lady Julian to get good spiritual advice. So she's a spiritual advisor and she rewrites the story, the story of the visions and what they mean, the theological meaning. And she probably worked on that for a number of decades, we don't know. Um, and she writes then what's often called the long text, much longer. 86 chapters, 63,000 words, Uh, better title is probably a revelation of love, a revelation of love. Uh, Julian's theology is above all integrative in the sense that it's not school theology, it's not like what the academic scholastics were doing, it's a visionary account and a theological mystical meditation on what those visions meant that has a profound, deep, but integrated theology, but it's so different from the ordinary methods that you need to read it carefully and to begin to try to interpret it. I taught Julian uh, Narch for many, many years and, and uh, you know, wrote uh, articles that touched on her, and uh, she's in the fifth volume of my history of mysticism in a long chapter, and I so spent many months rereading her and reading the new literature, and I really came to understand her much more deeply. I realized I had not, plumb the depths of Julian's theology in my earlier teaching and, uh, and my earlier writing uh, because she has that kind of depth, like Eckhart, but in a different modality. The more you read her, the more you see, and the more you see how integrated her vision of God and God's relationship to the world is. And you see the striking originality of so much of what she has to, uh, has to say. The center of Julian's theology is easy, its ramifications are hard. The center is love. Chapter 86 of the Revelation, (laughs) Uh, she asks, she says for 15 years, she'd be asking God for deeper insight into this thing, the experience. The answer was given her in our spiritual understanding. Voice of God. Know it well. Love was his meaning. Who reveals it to you? Love. Why did he reveal love? What what did he reveal? Love. Remain in this and you will know more of the same. So it's God as, it's, it's love. Charity. Uncreated charity, created charity, and given charity. The uncreated charity of God, the created charity that is the soul, and the given charity, which is the gift of grace in deeds and by which we love God for himself and ourselves in God. That's the kind of center. But an important aspect of this, perhaps the most important practice of living out the message of love, is prayer. Is prayer. Because in prayer we worship charity unmade, that's God. We express the depths of our own... Charity made, our created nature, our soul. And we exercise the charity given by Christ and the Holy Spirit. We exercise the gift of grace. And she teaches us about prayer specifically in Revelation 14. The 14th of the 16 revelations centers on prayer. And that's what I want to talk about in maybe 5 to not more than uh, 10 minutes. There are other texts about prayer in the course of both of these uh, both of these accounts but uh, chapter 14 and chapter 14 occurs both in the short text and in the long text in the short text it's the 19th uh, section or chapter in the long text it's 41 through uh, through 43 this is what she said I'll start with the short text unpack that and then there are three I think um, additions that come or further insights that come in the long text but to cite from the short text Fourteen, Revelation 14, after this our Lord showed me about prayer in which showing I saw two conditions, two characteristics in those who pray. One condition is they that they will not pray at random but only for what is God's will and worship. The second is that they apply themselves mightily and continuously to beseech, beseech, ask God what is his will and what is his worship, that is, how should we worship him. These two characteristics, Julian explains, in accordance with the teaching of the Holy Church. To pray in the right way is to pray for things that are in accordance with God's will and his worship. Once again, fiat voluntas tua, let God's will be done. Secondly, our beseeching, uh, Julian says, must be strong and unrelenting. We have to keep praying to God with what she calls sure trust, secret trust, sure hope and, and confidence. And it's also a prayer that's incorporated into the life of Christians. It's a collective prayer. She says, and thus we pray for all our even Christians, our fellow Christians is the modern version of that. Thus we pray for all our even Christians and for all manner of people that God's will be done. For we would that all manner of men and women were in the same virtue and grace that we desire for ourselves. But she knows proper praying is not easy. And she notes that it's difficult to pray because we often doubt that God hears us, we sense our own unworthiness, and we often experience dryness in praying. <laughs> Talking about the question I answered at the beginning about a dryness. She says she has experienced all of these as indeed have we all. So, you know, traditional teaching of prayer and prayer's difficulty, but here it takes a turn, and it takes a turn towards Julian's originality because as she confronts God with these problems about praying, these difficulties, she says, The Lord brought all this to her mind as he gave her great strength to continue praying. And then God says to her, I am the ground of thy beseeching. I am the ground of your beseeching. I am the ground or foundation of your beseeching. First it is my will that you should have it, the beseeching, asking. Then I make you wish for it, then I make you beseech it and you ask for it. How then, how could it be then that you would not have what you you beseech? So in other words, Julian has recentered prayer in God, rather than in us. And when we confront these difficulties about prayer, we're confronting our own difficulties. If we realize that it's God who is praying in us, God is the ground of our beseeching, God is the ground of our asking, we get a whole different view of prayer, we get a whole different theology of prayer, we get a whole different aspect. Praying is not something that we do, Praying is something that God is doing in us as the ground of our beseeching. And that should give us confidence in our prayer, even when it seems very difficult to do. When we have dryness, when we have difficulty understanding if uh, if we are heard. And she goes on to emphasize that it's this kind of prayer, which is actually the source of our union with God. Prayer ones the soul with God. Prayer ones the soul with God, it makes God to uh, become one with us. When we recognize that it's God praying in us, we are one with God. In the final part of the uh, 14th showing in the short text, and I'm winding up here, Julian makes a further step from petitionary prayer, which is really what beseeching is, to contemplative prayer, emphasizing that prayer makes an accord between God and the soul and that we may move from the prayer of supplication to the prayer in which we, but behold uh, reverently what God says, that is, behold or contemplate reverently what He says. So within the act of praying, we move from beseeching to looking, to beholding, to what we can call a, a contemplation. So proper attitude towards prayer is a recognition of our union with God and is really a state of contemplation. And very, very briefly, if you look at the long text, chapters 41 through 43, uh, the teaching is fundamentally the same, and I recommend you know, reading these over. They're not long texts, but there are three additions or qualifications or specifications that come about in the long text as Julian has spent time thinking about prayer more. The first is, Julian highlights the fact that all our prayer is part of Christ's prayer, as uh, given to us by the Holy Spirit." So there's a greater recognition of the Christological dimension. She even gives a definition of prayer. Beseeching is a true, gracious, lasting will of the soul, won and fastened into the will of our Lord by the sweet, secret working of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord himself is the first receiver of our prayer, and he accepts it most thankfully. So, prayer is Christological, but it's also pneumatological. It's also the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in the short text, she had mostly talked about petitionary prayer, beseeching. In the long text, she expands this to note the importance of thanksgiving, thanking. I'll quote, Thanking is a true inward knowing with great reverence and lovely lovely dread, loving fear, turning ourselves with all our powers toward the task our Lord stirs in us that is enjoying and thinking, and thinking inwardly. And finally, the third point. In the long text, in the 43rd chapter, uh, Julian says more about the relationship between prayer of petition, the prayer of thanksgiving, and the prayer of vision or contemplation. And uh, here, I think, you find some texts that are very specifically a kind of uh, descriptions of what we would call mystical prayer. I'll quote just one of these and ending. Um, And thus we shall with his sweet grace in our own meek and continual prayer come into him now in this life with many secret touchings of sweet spiritual sights and feelings measured out to us as our simplicity may bear it. When by his special grace God shows himself here, he strengthens the creature from above and he measures the showing according to his will as it is profitable for the person at that time. So God as the ground of our beseeching and the recognition of that as the recognition of our oneness with God in a prayer that starts from the petitionary level, moves on to thanksgiving and comes into a prayer of contemplation and union. That's Julian's message. And that's as much as I have to say right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you.